The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. And, uh, again, follow the program, danprofshow.com. Podcasts are there. They're on, uh, also downloadable from Spotify and iTunes. On social media, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including, of course, Parler. And we begin with the, the resignation of Attorney General William Barr, scheduled to take effect December 23rd. Talked a bit about it with Michael Goodwin from the New York Post on yesterday's program. But since there's so much divided opinion on Barr's legacy, I wanted to... Uh, weigh in on whether or not uh, Barr deserves a thank you or a good riddance. Uh, I know many believe it's a good riddance because Trump has soured on Barr over the last uh, couple of months, and this is the reason for his premature departure. There's no question about it. From uh, you know, his lack of a vote of confidence in mid-October when he was asked if Barr would be uh, part of an administration, a Trump administration, in a second term, and he said, you know, talk to me in a few weeks, to the open hostility over the last couple of weeks since the election and even into this past Sunday, where President Trump expressed his frustration and disappointment with Barr as it pertained to the non-disclosure of the Hunter Biden investigation, correcting the public record about the ongoing Hunter Biden investigation prior to the election, as well as his lack of aggressiveness in Trump's, from Trump's perspective in pursuing allegations of voter fraud. Well, I'm in the thank you camp, and I think that uh, Barr has been unfairly maligned first as Trump's personal attorney, which was the handle of the swamp and uh, the D.C. press corps, the comm shop of the Democrat Socialist Party, and now unfairly maligned as some sort of enemy of Trump or some sort of cupcake or uh, the, you know lacking a fight. He backed lacking the fight. He backed down. I don't think any of that's true. I think Barr is a principled guy. I think he's a plain-spoken guy that belies a deep intellect and uh, a deep commitment to the founding values of this country. And I think you saw that reflected in his time in the public eye over the last couple of years. And, and, And by the way, I mean, Barr also went out per the letter that President Trump tweeted out uh, in a— you know, proper style. I mean, he was perfectly complimentary of the president, and frankly, the president was complimentary of him. Uh, Just had a very nice meeting with Attorney General Barr at the White House. Our relationship has been a very good one. He has done an outstanding job. That's the top-line assessment of President Trump. Uh, And um, and in his letter, Barr goes through, uh, Trump's accomplished. Greatly honored that you call me to serve your administration, the American people, once again, as Attorney General. Proud Proud to have played a role in the many successes and achievements you deliver for the American people. Your, uh, he goes on to say that um, you know what you accomplished uh, and your willingness to uh, try to reach out to people to work together, despite immediately being met by a partisan onslaught against you, in which no tactic, no matter how abusive and deceitful, was out of bounds. The uh, nadir uh, of this campaign that he describes in the letter, Barr's resignation letter, was the effort to cripple, if not oust your administration with frenzied and baseless accusations of collusion with Russia. Few could have weathered these attacks, much less forge ahead with a positive program for the country. And he goes on and on and on, talking about warp speed, talking about the economy, and uh, talking a little bit about what justice was up to uh, 
as a you know part of the Trump administration, including with Operation Legend to assist law enforcement in cities that had been turned over to the mobs, from Kansas City to Chicago to Minneapolis to Portland to Seattle, uh, with non-prosecution prosecutors and mob appeasers in mayor's offices to, to the range of other matters where Bill Barr, I think, was always and is still a paragon of the rule of law. He is not an ends-justify-the-means guy. And I think because we see the lawless left play by nobody's rules, we think that the way to respond is to have people that do the same. It's just a power play. It's where we're in a Hobbesian state of nature. Who has, whoever has power, however briefly, should use it to maximum force regardless of any underlying principle. That's not who Bill Barr is, and I don't think that's who he should be, and I don't think that's who we should be. I want to say this, so I will. You know, The difference between uh, conservatives and the leftists is that we could be them, but they couldn't be us, and we should guard that jealously. We do not have to adopt the uh, dismal position of the ends justifying the means in order to be successful, in order to beat back the left. In point of fact, if we compromise our values and become no better than they are, then we're almost assuredly doing their ultimate bidding. So I don't want to be there. And just a little bit of reflection on Barr, because everything is in the moment now and what he shouldn't have, shouldn't have done without, with respect to a disclosure of the Hunter Biden investigation. We've tackled that a bit, what he should or shouldn't have done with respect to voter fraud. And we've tackled that a little bit. And by the way, he makes mention in his resignation letter of the ongoing uh, look-see at voter fraud to maintain the integrity of our elections. But it, it is worth remembering that he wasn't afraid to tackle voter fraud. And he sort of, you know, sent uh, a flare up around Labor Day in this uh, very contentious interview he did with Wolf Blitzer to put everyone on notice, states as well as the Trump campaign. And remember that states per the Constitution are uh, or elections are per the Constitution are, are largely state and local matters. So there's a limitation on what the Department of Justice can be can do preemptively. So uh, here is some preview of what Barr anticipated and the Trump campaign should have better and prepared for with respect to the push for all vote-by-mail elections. James Baker said back in 2009 that mail-in voting is fraught with the risk of fraud and coercion. But since then, and, there and have until been a lot this of no, well, sorry, that have improved it. Let me talk. Yeah, please. Uh, and since, this, since that time, there have been, in the newspapers, in networks, academic studies saying it is open to fraud and coercion. The only time the narrative changed is after this administration came in. But elections that have been held with mail have found substantial fraud and coercion. For example, we indicted someone in Texas, 1,700 ballots collected he from people who ha could vote. He made them out and voted for the person he wanted to. Okay? Because that kind of thing happens with mail-in ballots. And, and he continued. Well, well this is playing with fire. This is playing with fire. We're a very closely divided country here. And if people have to have confidence in the results of the election and the legitimacy of the government, and people trying to change the rules to this, to this methodology, which, as a matter of logic, is very open to fraud and coercion, is reckless and dangerous, and the people are playing with fire. I don't know how much uh, a, a stronger an admonition you can expect from Attorney General on the topic in real time. Barr also in real time on COVID. Uh, 
offering comments not dissimilar to those that Justice Alito offered just a few weeks ago. But this is Barr again back uh, uh, in September talking about uh, uh, the uh, excuse me back uh, all the way back uh, at the outset of uh, the lockdowns talking about this historic infringement on the civil liberties of Americans. And remember, this is somebody who interceded, whose Justice Department interceded on behalf of churches around the country initially. So you, we want to make it all about Hunter Biden We want to, and the investigation, which is pending, the Durham investigation, which didn't deliver before Election Day. We could talk about that. Uh, and that's understandable to some extent, the voter fraud. But uh, there are these other material things that uh, he did, that he stood for, that he advanced during his tenure. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, the, it's, the, it's you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. We have epidemics and pandemics. This is a very serious one, a grave one. But uh, they... They come and, and, you know, just because something is a medical crisis, it doesn't give a complete blank check to to executive rule, which is, yes, doctor, you might be right. But just think of all the collateral consequences and the costs of that. And that is not science. okay? it is the generalist. And the people and the representatives of the entire community that should be making these balancing acts, it is not dictated by science. So all this nonsense about how this is dictated, something is dictated by science is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, look, part of, I think, the Trump, I mean, excuse me, the bar record as uh, attorney general during the Trump administration will be informed by whatever does or doesn't happen from the ongoing Durham investigation, both in terms of Russian collusion and what the uh, top law enforcement and intel agencies and their personnel and that their head personnel did. And then also uh, the the Hunter Biden investigation that's ongoing. What what comes of that, if anything, that will be part of, of his legacy and the legacy on which he's judged. But there are these other component parts, too, in addition to the man himself himself uh, that uh, demand uh, additional consideration. This is Dan Prophet. This is the Dan Prophet Show. Welcome back to the show. Since I referenced the big guy, Joe Biden, in our conversation before the break about uh, Attorney General Barr, uh, let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden and his uh, so-called unity speech yesterday after the Electoral College, the states, uh, the electors in the 50 states uh, voted and uh, submitted their votes to the Electoral College to be counted by Congress on January 6th. This is... um, The predicate for the call for unity, sort of interesting approach that uh, Joe Biden took. It's an interesting way of uh, making an appeal for healing. First, I call people who disagree with me extremists, and then I implore them to come together around me. Okay. Even more stunning, 17 Republican attorneys general and 126 Republican members members of the Congress Actually, they actually signed on to a lawsuit 
filed by the state of Texas. That lawsuit asked the United States Supreme Court to reject the certified vote counts in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. This legal maneuver was an effort by elected officials and one group of states to try to get the Supreme Court to wipe out the votes of more than 20 million Americans in other states and to hand the presidency to a candidate who lost the Electoral College, lost the popular vote, and lost each and every one of the states whose votes they were trying to reverse. It's a position so extreme, we've never seen it before. A position that refused to respect the will of the people, refused to respect the rule of law, and refused to honor our Constitution. Right. You're a bunch of extremists uh, who, uh, who signed on to the electoral challenges in courts and, and uh, made arguments before state legislatures or supported the arguments that were being made. You're a bunch of extremists with no honor, don't honor the will of the people, don't honor four corners of the Constitution, according to the big guy. But, hey, uh, let's all heal now, and can somebody get me a lozenge? You know, in this battle for the soul of America, democracy prevailed. We, the people, voted. Faith in our institutions held. The integrity of our elections remains intact. And now it's time to turn the page, as we've done throughout our history. To unite, <clears throat> to heal. <laughs> yeah, as I said, an interesting approach to uh, letting the healing begin. And then, of course, uh, old Scranton Joe, the big guy, uh, does his St. Francis of Assisi impersonation. Uh, yeah. Maybe this is one of his favorite palmists. I don't know. I know we'll get through this one, but together. So as we start the hard work to be done, may this moment give us the strength to rebuild this house of ours, upon a rock that can never be washed away, as in the prayer of St. Francis, for where there is discord, union, where there is doubt, faith, where there is darkness, light. This is who we are as a nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real persuasive. Uh, interestingly, uh, while this was going on, something else happened yesterday, and that was the release of this report uh, per a uh, case in Michigan in Antrim County, Michigan, where those uh, votes were switched and and it was caught and it was corrected. First, Joe Biden winning Antrim County, a rural county of Michigan, and then realizing there was a, a election official said a human error with respect to the software upload and uh, the uh, proper election results were recorded of Trump winning that Republican county. Well, uh, this is a suit brought by Matt DiPerno on behalf of a voter in Antrim County. He was able to do something the Trump campaign was unable to do, didn't try to do, which may speak to the uh, legal judgment of the Trump legal team. Uh, He, uh, representing his client, was able to get a circuit court judge in Michigan to allow essentially a forensic review of a couple of Dominion voting systems machines in Antrim County. Here's what the judge allowed, and here's what they found, according to Matt DiPerno, this interview he gave yesterday to our friend, the great investigative reporter, Shell Atkinson. Correct. He allowed us to take forensic images of the 16 SIM cards, the 16 uh, flash drives, uh, and the, the main election server that is held in the county building in Antrim County. And are those Dominion voting machines? They are. And what did you find or what did your expert find? Well, what we found is the system is set up in a way to create massive errors. It has a 68% error rate, um, no matter what uh, software version you're running. 
So if you're running the latest software version, you're still going to get 68% error rate, which is higher than the federal limit of 1 in 125,000. Yeah, exponentially higher. One in 125,000, 68 in 100. Yeah, that's much higher. Uh, if that's true, why would that be? What what occur? And, and how does this give rise to the potential of voter fraud? So 68% of the ballots go into a file where they're then sent somewhere for bulk adjudication by someone with zero oversight. There's where you have the potential for tabulation chicanery. Right. Sixty eight percent error rate. So those ballots that generate an error are then bulk adjudicated by somebody, as you heard from the attorney, Matt DiParno, who uh, has no oversight. Something else that uh, he said that they found the or more to the point, didn't find the log files from this election. System files, including the files that would show us Internet connections, had all been removed. They were removed on November 4th. And were you able to recover them? Uh, We have not been able to recover them yet. We're still searching. We've only had the data for a week. And by the way, those log files being maintained for uh, a period of time is by statute. So if what DiPerno is saying is true, that would be a violation of the law. Make it a crime to delete election records for 22 months after an election. And we know for a fact that these records were deleted on November 4th. Nope, I I think this is is quite explosive, this report that we put out today, and it shows that that the Dominion uh, voting system uh, is designed to corrupt the election process. Now, of course, the election authorities, as well as Dominion, dismiss uh, the claims that that DiPerno is making, but they do so generally without regard to the specific claims of the error rate and the log files which uh, is curious to me, but uh, uh, that's what they did. They dismissed saying he's misinterpreting it. This is more charlatanry on behalf of some Trump ally, even though he's not part of the Trump legal team. He's definitely a Trump supporter. Uh, And so what is the remedy? Well, what will happen now is this case will go forward into discovery and we'll potentially find out at some point as this case moves along, moves forward, whether or not uh, the assertions that are made by Matt DiPerno turn out to be true as more discovery is realized and uh, the case proceeds to a final adjudication. So you may have this situation where, I mean, it seems like there are some legitimate issues being raised if what he's saying is true, but uh, even if uh, he's successful in getting the remedy for his client in Antrim County, Michigan, which is that his client's vote be counted, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll, that uh, the Trump supporters are going to get anything approaching a satisfying remedy or satisfying even explanations in advance of any potential remedy with respect to these voting systems around the country. But uh, this is the sort of stuff that I think will continue to trickle out uh, over the course of the next several weeks in advance of the January 6th count in Congress, in advance of the January 20th inauguration of the next president, and even in advance of the next president's administration, particularly if it's Joe Biden. This is Dan Proctor. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. As we were talking about the top of the hour about Attorney General Barr and his legacy, it will be in part informed by the outcome of the Durham investigation as it pertains to what uh, intel and law enforcement agencies did from 2016 to the end of the Trump administration, really, combined with uh, what uh, may come from an investigation into Hunter Biden and Biden Inc.'s foreign activities, now that it's been conceded that a federal criminal investigation is underway into Hunter Biden. It will also be in part uh, something that informs the ongoing credibility or lack thereof of the D.C. press corps, and that's something that uh, our friend Sora Bamari, op editor of the New York Post, has tackled. Uh, so Bamari is uh, not just the op-editor of the New York Post. He's also the author of the forthcoming The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. He joins us now. So, Rab, thanks so much for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Well, I mean, you understand why the uh, D.C. press corps hasn't been able to get around to the Hunter Biden story still to this day. Really, uh, they've got to uh, focus on conspiracy theories surrounding Cash Patel, who's filed a $50 million defamation suit against CNN. The big tech is focused on taking down uh, Dilbert cartoon creator Scott Adams' uh, video posts, but his views on things that have transpired election-related. I mean, so they can't get to everything. They can't get to everything important. They're focused on those other important areas. Yeah, Dan, I mean, not considered polite to gloat, but we at the New York Post feel like we're entitled to do some gloating because, as you remember, in October, we broke the story of Hunter Biden's laptop and his and the dealings that they disclosed between him and Ukrainian energy executives, executives from a communist Chinese-backed state energy firm. As you'll remember, I mean, it was just a circling of the wagons by the entire, almost the entire media, with few rare exceptions. CNN, NPR, New York Times, every possible outlet says this is Russian disinformation. NPR, not, not going to waste our readers' time with this. Exactly. I mean, it, 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 that's especially offensive because none of us can get a refund for the tax dollars we uh, put into NPR. And then you had 50 intelligence officials. This one's really, I mean, I think so unbelievably low and dangerous. You know, you had 50 former intelligence officials saying this story has all the hallmarks of uh, Russian disinformation. And they said in their letter that they had no evidence for that. Nevertheless, essentially just a rare, bare assertion based on the fact that they used to work for the CIA or whatever. So they basically used their credibility to try to discredit the story. Yeah, of course. Um, although, uh, yeah, I, 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 it has, has Jack Dorsey figured out how to uh, uh, restore the New York Post Twitter account yet, or is that still a pending matter? No, no, he, he backed down on that. They had us suspended for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, various people, including CNN's Jake Tapper, were saying, well, why doesn't, why doesn't the New York Post just delete those tweets? Because what Dorsey had insisted on was that we would delete the original tweet, get our account back, and then... Uh, we could retweet the same things again. Um, and we refused because we insisted that that what we had before, what we had put up was not hacked material. It was not in violation of any Twitter policy. And so we stood our ground and luckily, you know, he just eventually, you know, unaccountably and inexplic- inexplicably backed down. Well, and uh, we have uh, Joe Biden's reaction being, uh, at least to this point, I'm proud of my son, which is not exactly a response on point. Uh, I, I wonder where you think this goes under a Biden administration, whether there's a special counsel appointed or it just continues as part of a Durham investigation. I mean, there are so many reasons why there should be either a special counsel investigation or at the very least, the legal scholar Jonathan Turley yesterday suggested keeping the U.S. attorney who's on the case right now, keeping him, allowing him to stay 
Usually when a new president comes in, I get rid of all 50 U.S. attorneys and appoint new ones. But, you know, Turley suggested that he's keeping this one and just to give the appearance of that, that this will be a fair investigation. If, they, if, they, if Biden replaces the U.S. attorney in charge and someone else comes in and just throws away the charges, it'd just be so obvious that um, – and look, this, is, this, is, this has a national security implication. We're talking about Chinese firms um, that apparently shared offices or they looked into sharing offices with, with Hunter and members of his family. Uh, you know, I said on Fox News last night, and there's something amusing about that because Joe Biden – Essentially, it was one of the architects of the post-Cold War order where we gave China an opportunity to enter the, uh, 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 the world order and often at the right. expense of America's technological superiority and at the expense of our workers. In the case of Hunter, you have in a much more vulgar sense, you have him literally – you know, giving keys to a Chinese executive. For yes, the, the the parallels, right? Uh, the the a chip off the old block, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Soab Amari, uh, we'll uh, we'll be right back with more of Soab Amari. Talk a little bit more about this, as well as uh, another story that the press is uh, being willfully blind to, and that's the allegation of sexual harassment against. America's governor there, Andrew, Andrew Cuomo. Morriso Romari, op-ed editor of the New York Post, author of the forthcoming The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Soar Bamari. He's the op editor of the New York Post. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. And since the New York Post broke the Hunter Biden story, we're going to continue our conversation about the Hunter Biden investigation now that it's been formally recognized no less than by Hunter Biden. And uh, Sora, with respect to the Biden family and the prospect of a Biden administration, uh, where would, what, what do you think the pertinent questions to be put to Joe Biden are? Hunter can you know, hide as uh, the subject of an investigation and talk to my attorney. Joe Biden in the Oval Office, he, he can't hide forever. And I assume that even somebody in the D.C. press corps, maybe a Jonathan Carl or somebody will actually ask him a pertinent question at some point. Well, I'm not holding my breath, to be honest, because over the course of the campaign, especially in response to our Hunter Biden files reporting, the, the media acted like, the Hunter Biden defense team. Oh, it's all this information. Oh, it's all it's all vulgar Fox News, Murdoch's machine lies, so on and so forth. So why would the same people now turn around and cover this administration in a tough way? I mean, look, looking beyond this particular story, just the way that every single time Washington Post, CNN headline is framed so blatantly in service to the administration and against uh, President Trump and the GOP, that basically I have no faith in the press in the next four years. I have faith in, obviously, I have faith in the New York Post. I have faith in a few dissident voices on the left, people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, who've yeah. more or less been expelled in some ways from the mainstream. But someone has to ask this question of what did he know and to what extent is, is our Joe Biden's affairs bound up with his son? Is he, in fact, quote-unquote, the big guy identified in that, in that email about how to divvy up shares for investments in that Chinese firm? Or is, he, is that someone else? Certainly Hunter Biden's uh, business partner, 
came out and on the record said that that's that's a reference to Joe Biden. So um, if there's any fairness in the world, and unfortunately I don't think there is, but if there were any fairness in the world, after four years of what Trump's been put through, um, really tough questions need to be asked by um, uh, the press corps of, of Joe Biden, but I'm not holding my breath. Well, and the, there's the prospect it, it could get worse. I mean, there are other people that may get asked uh, questions and answer them in ways that are not unhelpful to the Biden administration. You had that uh, Chinese academic talk about how, you know, how their friends are back in charge in America and uh, their friends on Wall Street are going to be back in charge uh, making sure that uh, the ugliness of things like tariffs doesn't occur again in this administration. And you have this this massive data leak that has now been made public of several million Chinese Communist Party members in good standing that have been deployed all over the world, uh, in the, the Western world, and in particular in America, but not limited to America, to compromise uh, the West's interests and advance uh, China's interests to be the global hegemon. And, you know, who knows what all of the the relation, you know, in which directions all of these relationships go, particularly with uh, sort of the reckless conduct of Hunter Biden and his various business partners over the years. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's all just so gross. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, you can't blame them. They're, they advance their own interests of, 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 of China, which they see as a rightful uh, successor to the United States as the world's principal power. That's fine. I mean, it's not fine. I mean, we oppose it, but they are who they are. What's gross is not just Biden, but the entire elite that he represents, um, finance, big tech, big academia. I mean, all of them, this, this elite that has, you know, you see, you just get a tiny taste of it in, in um, Hunter Biden's tawdry affairs. But the, the real pros you don't even see because it's all legal. And they've created a world in which they have no real sense of loyalty to the United States. No real sense of loyalty to, to workers uh, whose who's, who's, who's sweat over their brows built this nation in many ways and allowed their companies or their universities or their finance firms to thrive. They just are looking out for themselves. And that was the one you know, real bright spot in, in President Trump where he intuited this. He saw that this is how our, our elite were, and, and it, wasn't, it hadn't worked out so well for the vast majority of Americans. And it's just very sad and, and gross that, you know, frankly, the same crew will be in charge. Joe Biden, it, throughout his career, has eased communist China's past into the world order, into the international trade system, into uh, uh, the factory towns in America that are now just decimated uh, or have been by, by Chinese trade. It is, it, I just uh, wanted to check in on this. Is the is the Me Too moment over? Because uh, I, I know there was no interest in, uh, speaking of uh, other stories that were of no interest to the press, no interest in Tara Reid's sexual uh, assault allegations against Joe Biden during the campaign. Also doesn't seem to be any interest in a former staffer for Andrew Cuomo, uh, a woman uh, named uh, Boylan. Yeah, Lindsay Boylan, uh, who said uh, that she was harassed by Governor Cuomo. And you've also had other people break bad on Governor Cuomo, too, who were consultants for him. There was an, an op-ed in The Nation the other week uh, mockingly referring to him as St. Uh, Andrew of COVID and so on and so forth and what a what a toxic environment it is for uh, to work in. But this was by another female. I, I just so it is. Is that over? Is the Me Too all done now? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that uh uh, it's thoroughly partisan. Look, she, Ms. Boylan, made pretty vague accusations, um, and uh, the governor's office responded by releasing her work record and kind of the darker aspects of her own record. But the point is, look, 
if that's the standard, and we should agree that just vague accusations shouldn't be the standard uh, to destroy people's lives and careers, then let's apply that across the board. But if, if it had been, let's say, Bill Barr or whoever, imagine how the press would have reacted. We, wouldn't have, we would have been talking about this. Even if the administration is outgoing, we still would have been talking about it, not just as a New York story, but as a national and a global story for 48 hours, 72 hours, and so on and so forth. This one, kind of going away. Have you noticed? It's just a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look at what what if 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 Lindsey Boylan uh, or somebody like that had made a similar accusation against Brett Kavanaugh in advance of his nomination, would it have been treated the same way? I mean, while Andrew Cuomo is under consideration to be Attorney General of the United States, I mean that's that's not a lifetime post, but it's obviously one of significance. I know he's an International Emmy Award winner, so he's off limits. But I I just want to know what the standard is, like you're saying. If if someone makes vague accusations, we should demand we should be give them as respect for a hearing as possible, but we should also demand, you know, uh, evidence. And I think that's what the Cuomo team is in some ways saying by releasing. I just, that's fine, but then let's be fair. That's all. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is Saurabh Amari, op-ed editor of the New York uh, Post. Uh, I almost said Times. Oh, my gosh, I caught myself. How embarrassing would that have been for you? Uh, (laughs) New York Post op-ed editor, author of the forthcoming book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Saurabh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. The podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back. All the attention was on Biden's speech post uh, the electors in the 50 states casting their ballots. But the more interesting remarks exchange was Joe Biden on a Zoom call with a bunch of uh, self-styled black civil rights leaders, you know, all playing the identity politics game, but getting testy with Biden, who got testy with them for some of his selections for cabinet posts. You know, they want more. Listen to this. But it's like when I named it, well, I don't know if that counts. I'm not so sure. Well, if it doesn't count for y'all, well, the hell with y'all. But because it's real, it's real. If uh, it's not good enough for y'all, then the hell with y'all. And he went, you know, full sort of uh, Southern, you know, deal there too, trying to tie. This is a a corollary to the, if you're black, you don't vote for Joe Biden. You ain't black. If you're black and you criticize Joe Biden, you ain't black. The hell with y'all. This is Joe Biden in an exchange with NAACP's Derek Johnson. Because the success of this administration will be the ability of the Senate to confirm your nominee. We have an opportunity here. And we want to make sure we seize upon this opportunity and allowing for the input necessary. Ten more appointments to go. A lot of people in our community are getting a little anxious because they are not seeing enough of the progress they thought they would have seen at this point. Let's not disappoint them and let's not get to a place where voters in Georgia begin to second guess. Okay, let me respond. I've got to go. Let me respond. There's a lot to respond to here. Time to Let's this. get something straight. You shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Okay? Number one. Okay. Uh, how about uh, belittling NAACP general counsel Sherilyn Eiffel? This is somebody who, you know, supported the Rachel Maddow proposition that Trump campaign officials should be put in prison on what charges. Doesn't matter what charges. 
extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years as a United States senator. Before, Sherilyn, you were even involved. I got it. I started off. I'm much older than you. Yeah. Let me tell you about the civil rights movement, Sherilyn Eiffel, general counsel of the NAACP. Who's Joe Biden? Who's the big guy? You've never seen me shy away. In the middle of the debate, I called him a racist. In the middle of the debate with him, I took on white supremacists. I'm the guy that took on every single time somebody was threatened in this country. The only white boy you know who did it, period. Yeah, white boy Joe from Scranton. The only white boy who took him on called him a racist. Everybody on the left called him a racist all the time. He just happened to be the last man standing on the debate stage against it. But anybody would have done the same thing. No courage in that. And oh, by the way, closing thought, he did you a favor. It ain't worth the job if I can't say what I believe. I didn't want to run this time. I ran this time because of the racist son of a gun who was president of the United States of America. That's why I ran. I mean, they were entertaining exchanges, and uh, I, you got to just really, I think, enjoy Joe Biden's disdain. You know, it was, it's usually indirect condescension. This is straightaway direct disdain. Maybe, maybe they didn't know he attended a historically black college, at least in his own mind. But the whole tenor of those exchanges was, how dare you race hustlers question the chops of me, the race hustler you put up. Got to love it. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at uh, danprofshow.com on social media at Dan Prof Show. And, uh, and that includes Parlor, by the way. This uh, interesting virtual briefing that was provided by Joe Biden's policy director, a woman named Steph Feldman. This was on education policy specifically. And uh, just a few of these uh, clips, how um, the Biden administration views charter schools versus failing local public schools and the predicate for pushing for reopening of schools. First, charters, Steph Feldman. Biden will make sure that we stop funding for charter schools that don't provide results. Oh, charter schools uh, need to be held accountable for results, the output, not just the input. Interesting. What about uh, the local public schools that are failing, not producing results? The first step is to make sure that we are providing these schools with the resources they need to provide a high quality education to our students. Many times, Title I schools are unable, which uh, as Eric uh, talked about earlier, are schools that are disproportionately serving students who come from low-income communities and the schools themselves are under-resourced. Oftentimes, they do not have the, the basic funding needed to make sure that you have enough teachers, to make sure you have school supplies. These are the schools where you are hearing about teachers paying hundreds of dollars out of their own pockets to buy school supplies for their students, which is just outrageous. Yeah, uh, right. The schools where we fund centralized bureaucracies and uh, buildings, uh, we don't fund uh, students and uh, education dollars, a fraction of education dollars allocated make their way to the classroom as compared to some of the more innovative competitors, including but not limited to charter schools. So just uh, just to be clear, the top line is charter schools that are not producing should be defunded. And I agree with that. Public schools that are not producing should have their funding increased, even though in most cities, 
particularly big cities, on a per-pupil basis, the traditional local government school receives more per-pupil funding than does the charter school. Uh-huh. And in addition to spending money, well, part of that more money for those local public schools is just to reopen. What is the cost to reopen again? Yep. So the funding we need here is funding so schools have the resources so they can actually get back to the job of reopening. Right. So, again, more money for those uh, local government schools that are uh, lorded over by the teachers union so they can uh, safely reopen. And that is sort of one of those goalposts that's ever moving as well. Again, the per pupil expenditures at the K through 12 level in government schools in most big cities in America as compared to charter schools, as com- particularly as compared to private schools. And they can't seem to find their way to uh, whatever uh, put uh, screens up or distribute masks or what or or have a, a little bit more hand sanitizer on site compelling stuff and by the way it's not the increasing evidence it's a scientific consensus both on the need for kids to be in school and for the very limited incidence of transition at schools but again these men and women of science and data i guess pick and choose their science and data for more on all of this we're pleased to be joined by father john belmonte who is superintendent of the diocesan schools in venice florida formerly school superintendent of the diocesan schools in joliet illinois father belmonte thanks for joining us so um what about uh biden policy director's uh, perspective uh, so charter failing charter schools should be defunded failing uh, government schools of a traditional nature the local government school should have their funding increased and all schools of a public nature should have their funding funding increased in order to reopen is that uh, your experience as a uh, superintendent of diocesan schools well i would be in the category of someone who believes in funding success and so i would say fund our success because in our diocesan schools we're very successful We reopened here in the Venice Diocese and throughout Florida in August. We started on August 17th, and we have been going with in-person schooling ever since, unbroken. Uh, We've had about 30 or 40 cases of COVID-19 with uh, students and teachers handled all of it, and the students have been in class learning every week, and right now we're at about 93% of our students in person and 7% of them online. And so this was, uh, so just uh, give us the details on the approach that you've been taking, because I think it's instructive. Is this uh, five days a week in person for those who choose to be in person and for those who choose to be remote, then they can be remote? Exactly. And so we started out with probably about 65 or 70 percent in person, and we've seen every week the number of students in person going up. So we're at 93% now across the diocese. That's about 5,000 students and teachers. And so we made that offer and we left that offer open. We've continued to do that um, here in the diocese. So we're down to about 7%. And, and frankly, those people who continue to choose to have their students do the online option, uh, some of them have some you know, very significant medical issues and so forth. And so we've left that op- option open for them. But as the parents have seen how uh, safe the schools are and how well it's going, they've just opted to return to school and all that has gone extremely well. What's the reaction uh, you hear, maybe speak to, uh, from uh, public school superintendents uh, in, uh, in your area, as well as from public school parents, where, where they're not, uh, they're not, they're, they're, they're not uh, under the same you know, regime? Well, Florida is a little bit different, as you know. Governor DeSantis, by executive order, uh, ordered that all schools would be back in person by the end of August. And so public schools are back and in person. I haven't spoken directly with uh, public school superintendents uh, about uh, these matters. Uh, quite frankly, it's been difficult 
difficult to get meetings, you know, for obvious reasons. My impression is that some districts in the area along the coast, uh, the west coast of Florida, uh, have handled the um, COVID cases quite well, and others have uh, have have had a lot of problems, uh, whether either self-inflicted or not. And so we seem to have been um, quite a bit more stable than some of the public school districts, as as, as my impression is. I mean, why why would that be? I mean, are you do you have more personal protective equipment than the public schools, or or what what would be the variable? Uh, good question. I, I would uh, again, this is just my observation. Um, we take a, a very kind of measured approach. Uh, we follow CDC guidelines. Um, our principals and teachers are very careful, which isn't to say that the public school teachers and principals are not careful, uh, but it does seem to be that um, I've seen anyway um, some public schools with um, you know very big outbreaks, and they do um, kind of uh, very extensive shutdowns of classrooms and um, and, and a lot of kids uh, going on uh, quarantine and into uh, online mode. Joe um, Biden. Uh, Joe Biden has said uh, he said previously, you know, you have to retrofit the ventilation systems in America's public schools in order for them to safely return. Did you have any uh, HVAC uh, retrofitting of all your schools in order for the kids to come we back? Did, uh, we did no HVAC. We certainly have left the doors open to have some good ventilation going through down here in Florida, sure. uh, but have had to do uh, very little of that. We have all the students uh, socially distanced in classrooms and uh, wearing masks. And uh, our teachers and principals are very good about uh, following those protocols. And since we follow those protocols, we have to quarantine very few students if they're exposed. And so we've handled those cases on a case-by-case basis, and it's gone, I think, extremely well. Uh, you know, just because uh, your most recent stint, where I know you from, is in Illinois mm-hmm. at the Joliet Diocese, to run in the schools there. Compare, contrast uh, a state that is run by the teachers' unions like Joliet versus a state that's really been at the forefront of school choice like Florida. Just what the environment's like. A very, very different environment, Dan. It's, here it seems to be quite open. Uh, you have the, you know, really from the governor on down, you have support. Uh, I know that the um, public school commissioner here, superintendent, uh, also very supportive of having schools reopened uh, in August when we were talking about these things. And so it just seems like a very different environment. And uh, the governor just continues to be very supportive and leaving the decisions for student safety and uh, how parents want to educate their children up to the parents, which seems to just be a very different approach compared to what I, I have seen uh, in Illinois. And and in big cities around America, so many big cities around America, it's sort of yeah. remarkable that uh, that mm-hmm. people are looking at the same, uh, uh, that people are making the same decision or making different decisions about the same uh the same variable, right? I mean, the decisions yes. could be starker between, say, the, the Diocese of Venice, Florida, and the uh, Chicago public school system uh, or the uh, New York exactly. City public school uh, system. I, I would add, you know, the other part of this is, you know, we've really tried to uh, provide for the students as normal a year as possible, and that has included high school athletics. And so I do think it's heartbreaking to see um, these other school districts uh, around the country uh, make decisions to uh, cancel um, athletics throughout uh, throughout the country, um, where we were able to run our high school athletic programs here in uh, certainly the diocese in the area, and I think throughout Florida, uh, with relatively few problems. We had a couple instances in, with our own teams uh, where some students got infected, but uh, our principals and athletic directors handled it very well, and the students were able to uh, compete and, uh, and enjoy high school athletics, uh, as well as uh, academics and all the other things that they get in our Catholic schools. Father John Belmonte, school superintendent, diocese of Venice, Florida. 
Father John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Because you ain't worth the salt in my tea. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Returning to uh, the topic of Bill Barr and his role, as I said in the first hour, as the chief intellect of the Trump administration, in addition to the chief law enforcement officer during his tenure. Uh, This from an interview I did with uh, Attorney General Barr uh, around uh, just after Labor Day of this year. This was uh, a few weeks into the uh, Operation Legend initiative at Department of Justice to help law enforcement at the city level deal with mob rule that was allowed to persist and, frankly, run amok in cities that were run and are run by mob-appeasing mayors and non-prosecution prosecutors. Listen to what uh, Barr had to say, though, sort of more globally, about the fork in the road that America is at at present. This just from a few months ago. Increasingly, I think we're being told that we should accommodate fix the rule of the mob, that the only way to get peace right now is, seems to be, the message now seems to be no Biden, no peace. But I think we're at a juncture in our history where the United States is going to be true to the unique and magnificently successful principles that undergird our government that has also inspired the most successful countries in the world, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and us and as well as some others. And uh, whether we're going to stick with those principles that have led to the greatest freedom and the greatest prosperity and has defended the world against left-wing totalitarianism and Nazism, which is an interesting question, what exactly wing Nazism is. But, or we're going to go down the collectivist path that has been the undoing of everyone who's tried it. And it's sad to me that we have reached this juncture with a good portion of the American population has no idea what the founding principles are or cannot intelligently discuss the basic principles of our Republican democracy. And that's sad. I personally think that the public educational system will never be able to correct the damage that has been done over the last couple of decades or more. And uh, he goes on to make the case for school choice, as we were discussing uh, previously, but with uh, Father John Belmonte. Uh, Well, uh, the choice before America is not like the choice in Robert Frost's road the road not taken. This choice matters. And somebody who is trying to shepherd the next generation of individuals down the road of freedom and constitutional principles is Roger Ream, who's the president of the Fund for American Studies. And he joins us today to talk about his public policy fellows program, which is in part almost a direct response to what Attorney General Barr was referencing in our discussion a few months back. Roger Ream, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. 
Well, thank you, Dan. That was a great lead-in for me to wish you a happy Bill of Rights Day. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. <laughs> I don't get that very much, I think, to Bill Barr's point. You don't hear a lot of people wishing each other happy Bill of Rights Days, but we should, uh, t- to his point about preserving the Republic, shouldn't we? That's right. It was this day in uh, December 15th in 1791 that uh, the three-quarters of the states approved the Ten amendments to the Constitution, which have done a lot to preserve at least some of our rights uh, from encroachment by government over the years. Yes, uh, and and this is part of the tutorial at Fund for American Studies programs, the Bill of Rights restraints on government, because the the individual is preeminent, and our rights don't come from Almighty government; they come from the Almighty, and so the need to restrain government from infringing on those rights. Yeah, in fact, uh, there's a professor at Georgetown, Randy Barnett, who's a Chicago native, who, sure. who has a great expression that our Constitution is the document that governs those who govern us. Uh, so that's why we started this public policy fellows program with theme is our experiment in self-government. And it's to make sure that leaders, young leaders, young professionals in leadership positions understand our founding principles, which are under attack. So it's very troubling for our future. And uh, this uh, Public Policy Fellows Program just developed that force a little bit more in terms of these these dozen or so young professionals that uh, you select, that the Fund for American Studies selects, and then they're distributed to different uh, partner organizations that you have to, uh, to, to, to get some experience while uh, getting an education in uh, you know, foundational American values. Yes, each year we, we select uh, 15 to 20. We have 17 right now, these Public Policy Fellows, uh, it's young people, young professionals who are working in think tanks. They might be in graduate school, uh, occasionally working on Capitol Hill in the media. And uh, like a lot of Americans, they haven't had as strong a, a, a grounding in our founding principles as we think they should. So in a one-year fellowship, we take them through uh, workshops, seminars. Uh, in normal years, we'll, we'll spend a weekend at Gettysburg and a weekend in, at Monticello, uh, where they learn uh, everything from our founding ideas up through Abraham Lincoln's uh, and Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, so they have, have that kind of grounding in how our, our history and our founding principles are intended to operate so that when they're working in their, throughout their careers for the next 30 or 40 years, uh, they will have a real, really good uh, framework from which to promote the ideas of liberty. And, uh, and uh, so I assume... Yeah, and I, I, su- I assume you pull young people who uh, have all sorts of diff- you know you mentioned some in grad schools have all, all sorts of educational backgrounds. Some that come to the table with the prestige credentials from you know uh, reputedly the best u- universities in, in America, which are the are you reputedly the best in the world. And I wonder you know how you find them. I just recall something Condi Rice said at a speech I attended a couple of years ago. This is after she's out of politics teaching at Stanford. And she's like, you know, I'm teaching at Stanford, and I have to tell you uh, the most depressing thing is the very few of my students who can construct a term paper, who can uh, you know, do thesis, uh, the argumentation, uh, the argumentation against the, uh, 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 the counterarguments, and a conclusion, who, who can follow that format and write a cogent paper on any topic. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's very depressing, and we hear that from our faculty as well. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it goes to what things you spoke of there, Dan, as well as their knowledge of history. Uh, they're, uh, they're coming very well motivated. They want to make the world a better place, uh, but they don't have the tools necessary to do so. They don't have the kind of 
understanding of first principles uh, that, that enable them to, to, you know, do the kinds of things they, they generally want to do to make the world a better place. So we have to uh, give them the tools of economics through the economics we teach in our programs and teach them about our founding principles. So uh, I think her comment is, is a sad one, but uh, is unfortunately very accurate. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have different types of programs. Our public policy fellows program is one where we do kind of pre-qualify the students to make sure they have a strong commitment to the ideas of, of limited government. And, and uh, so when they come into the program, we don't have to kind of do that kind of remedial education. These are bright young, young professionals. But in our undergraduate programs, our high school programs, you know, that's where we have to do the kinds of things that, that speak to what Condoleezza Rice was saying. For uh, those who are interested in the program, the uh, Public Policy Fellows Program or other Fund for American Studies programs, they go where? Teachingfreedom.org to find information. Teachingfreedom.org has links to all information about our programs for high school students, college students, and young professionals. He is Roger Ream, president of the Fund for American Studies. Teachingfreedom.org is the site. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We talked about uh, Joe Biden's curious appeal for unity uh, in the first hour, you know, donning uh, the uh, cloak of St. Francis of Assisi, saying it's time to heal, while also saying the people who uh, took him to court uh, dishonored the will of the people and the, the letter of the Constitution. It's just an interesting way to go about it. But I, I guess it looks like a positively uh, uh, indisputable olive branch compared to this treasure trove of sermons we're getting from Raphael Warnock, the one of the Democrats' Senate candidates in Georgia. He running against Kelly Loeffler. Yet another excerpt from Raphael Warnock's uh, greatest hits uh, has surfaced. This from 2017 on the occasion of the passing of the Trump tax cuts, or should I say King Herod's tax cuts. While others were sleeping, members of the United States Senate declared war and launched a vicious and evil attack on the most vulnerable people in America. Herod is on the loose. Herod is a cynical politician who's willing to kill children and kill the children's health program in order to preserve his own wealth and his own power. Hope is in the air, but Herod is on the loose. The hopes and the fears of all the years have met in V tonight. And so on Friday night, the United States Senate decided by a slim majority to pick the pockets of the poor, the sick, the old, and the yet unborn in order to line the pockets of the ultra-rich. Don't tell me about gangsters and thugs on the streets. 
There are more gangsters and thugs in Washington, D.C., in the Capitol than there are. Yeah, gangsters and thugs was the nicest thing he had to say about uh, Republicans who voted for the Trump's tax cuts, including uh, David Perdue running against John Ossoff in Georgia. That's uh, fascinating. Oh, by the way, the unborn, it's interesting for uh, the good reverend to invoke the unborn since he's the pro-choice pastor, so he describes himself. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Gabriel, editor-in-chief at ricochet.com and contributor to azcentral.com as well. John, uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Appreciate it. Uh, well, um, uh, the good uh, reverend and Dem Socialist Senate candidate, uh, I think, addresses this concern you have about us losing our religion. I mean, you heard uh, his... Uh, his melding of religion and public policy. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, really disturbing. And just looking at the stats over the past couple decades, uh, church membership or synagogue, even mosque membership altogether, if you tally them up, it's dropped from 70% attendance to 50. And you kind of see this popping up all over, people just replacing religion or faith of any kind with politics. And I think that sermon is a perfect example of that. Uh, It sounds like get out the vote rally uh, when we're supposed to be focusing on uh, something a little uh, more important than uh, whatever bill was just uh, passed by the U.S. Senate. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, there's almost no other way to explain how somebody like that could be in a a statistical dead heat for a U.S. Senate seat in Georgia were it not that politics is replacing, you know, true faith. Right. Um, and that's how people kind of show their veneration is by getting out to vote. And uh, as we always see, screaming at each other on social media, that's where they can show their show off their morality, uh, whatever they believe in. And uh, I, I think that is causing a lot of the excess division and, I, I think the left was far ahead in the right in this, but you're seeing it on the right as well to a lesser extent of just this focus on politics is this is what's going to save us if this person gets in office or that person's out of office. And uh, a lot of it instead, it's a lot easier to go out and vote every four years than it is to uh, look at yourself like I need to do every day and go, wow, I really messed that up. I have to approve myself a little bit and focus on something higher than uh, some politician way out in Washington, D.C. Yeah, but uh, you uh, can't blame people if uh, they're not real excited to uh, uh, march to the tune of somebody that uh, for the last four years, up until five minutes ago, has been saying they're a white supremacist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that's the thing, too, is you have uh, people like Reverend Warnock, um, I, I don't know, he, he's always sounded like a politician. When you see this, uh, as you know, treasure trove of documents of oppo research on this guy, he's been in plain view running for office nonstop. You know, you would expect, I don't know, if I show up to church on Sunday, I expect a sermon about uh, some guy named Jesus or <laughs> sort of guy sure. reading from a Torah or something. And instead, it seems like he spends uh, such a great deal of his time just screaming at people he doesn't agree with politically, which is, I don't know, maybe I'm old-fashioned. It seems to be missing the point. Uh, When we come back with uh, John Gabriel, editor of Ricochet.com, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, losing the religion and perhaps losing our senses attendant to that. More with John Gabriel right after that. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. You have termites in your smile. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome back to the show and in uh, Charles McKay's 1841 book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which is a particular salient read in 2020 America. He wrote, men go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly one by one. And um, boy, that turns out to be a, a real challenge then in overcoming uh, mobocracy and um, and and I think the iteration that we've been talking about of groupthink in 2020 America, which is rooted in safetyism, safety as a god, science essentially as a god to replace a, the actual god. For more on that, we'll continue our conversation with John Gabriel, who is a editor of Ricochet.com and a contributor to AZCentral.com as well. Yeah, John, what about that? Uh, you know, the fear mongering drives everybody to uh, uh, to, 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 to really irrational places, um, but they only come out of that irrational place a little bit at a time. And so you're looking at a, a long horizon for a return to something approaching sanity. Yeah, it's um, – it, and I, I think a lot of the blame, too, if you turn on any cable news channel, right, the most famous in the past four years, but CNN, it's just this this constant sense of fear about everything. Um, and every month, every any month you can go to in the past four years, you know, a couple months ago it was Trump is stealing all our mailboxes. This was like major <laughs> media was saying this was actually happening, stealing the election because he's going on at night and taking mailboxes away from people. Um, it's just absolute insanity. And yeah, it might help the raise, uh, it might help them uh, perform in an election. Sometimes it backfires, as it did in twenty sixteen. But at what price, really? It's just that's why nobody can really trust the media. Any <laughs> any time I want to write on a certain issue or something, it's like okay, I'll I'll go to somewhere on the left and somewhere on the right and somewhere in the middle and maybe some third party, just some boring journal study on a certain issue, just so I can kind of triangulate and go, okay, what are the actual facts here? Because if you're just reading headlines, it's nothing but fear and panic twenty four seven. And it's really ramped up, not only uh, with the 2020 election, but the entire COVID thing. As you said, you know, we're talking a 99-plus percent survival rate. And every day it's just fear and panic nonstop. You know, it's, yeah, it's serious, um, but there's a lot of serious things going on. And we can't uh, stop focusing on, say, uh, cancer screenings um, when because we're afraid of COVID. Well, and and also the the justification only works in one direction, right? President Trump was uh, pilloried and ridiculed for suggesting uh, the summer that he would that there would be a vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, he was mocked. He was fact checked. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know how you fact check <laughs> optimism, but he was fact checked by NBC <laughs> News saying, uh, you know, experts say it's going to be twelve to eighteen months. Well, he's just saying, you know, if if everything goes right, this could happen. Hey, fact checker, the experts say that's not possible. Well, it not only is possible, it happened. So I guess the experts were wrong initially about this too, like they've been wrong initially about just about everything with respect to COVID. But but there's there's no quarter for being uh, overly optimistic. There is uh, no limit to being overly 
pessimistic, overly fatalistic, really, the, the hysterical pronouncements, and it's sort of, you know, justified even when it's so far to the bounds that, that, that many of the safetyists have to concede the point that, wow, that was a little much. But it's always the, but, you know, we're trying to get people to comply because, you know, somebody took a flight on Thanksgiving to see their mother or because somebody wasn't standing in the idiot circle in the lobby by the elevator or something, and we need to be hysterical so people comply. Yeah, and what people do is they just tune it out after a while. Gosh, I'm sure you do. I do, definitely, and everyone I know does as well. When somebody's running around saying the sky is falling uh, nonstop, you're just going to stop believing them after a while. And that's what we're seeing with people not complying with the lockdowns as much because they kind of uh, took their shot in March. Remember two weeks to uh, slow the curve? You know, they're turning that into two years as as we speak Two weeks, two years. That's a rounding error for government, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's just absolute madness, and optimism is exactly what you want in any leader, whether it's a CEO, a coach of a sports team or something. You want them to say, hey, we might be down at the half, but darn it, we're going to get back, and it's going to go well, and we're going to make these plays, and I have a plan. That's what you want out of your leaders normally. Well, and that, uh, like you said, Trump's just been mocked and ridiculed for trying to buck up people's spirits instead of hiding under our beds in fear. Well, and then there's this just sort of schizophrenia among sort of the, the, the lockdowners. On the one hand, we're supposed to be exuberant, and, and, and we've got to, you know the UPS driver delivering the, the, uh, the doses of the Pfizer vaccine to some hospitals like uh, Paul Tibbetts, uh, right? There's an American mm-hmm. hero. Uh, that's how we're supposed to be. The, everything is an event, and Cuomo is with the first nurse to be inoculated, and Pritzker is with the first person to be inoculated here, and so on and so forth. Exuberance, hooray, we're on the path to getting to the other side of the pandemic. On the other hand, and there's all the cautionary. Well, wait a second. Um, uh, uh, we're still social distancing and masks probably through the summer, probably through the end of 2021, probably into 2022. You know, so so on the one hand, we're going to beat this thing. But on the other hand, you can expect the restrictions to stay in place or to continue to be intermittent in terms of their imposition. Yeah. And that way, nobody can plan, especially small business people. You know, we've been trying my wife and I have been trying hard to support small businesses and the local coffee place and the local restaurant with people working their rear ends off. Uh, Thankfully, it hasn't been too terrible in my neighborhood. But if you're living with one of these blue state governors who just gets a bad poll and decides, oh, I'm going to shut down a major city for the next few weeks, and I won't tell you when I'm ending it, these people can't plan around this. Uh, Meanwhile, Walmarts and Targets and Costco's are packed to the gills. That's okay, but uh, sitting outside at a little cafe down the street is a threat to the republic. It's just absolute insanity. And uh, people realize, and you know, not just people who lean right or conservative, but people on the left are losing their shirts. And they're like, this is idiotic. It doesn't make sense anymore. So, of course, they're not going to com- comply since it just looks completely illogical and non-scientific. Yeah, you're right. And and there was a journal piece this week about, you know, sort of the next pocket of of uh, resistance to the lockdowns is not is not MAGA world. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's people trying to get by world. You know, that that. World. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, he is John Gabriel. He's the editor of Ricochet dot com. Also contributor to AZ Central dot com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank
Show at danprofshow.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Well, talking about the Cleveland baseball team since uh, the Indians' nickname is gone, David Marcus tries to make an appeal to reason. (laughs) You know that's going to go nowhere, but I appreciate the effort, David Marcus, over at the Federalists. Erasing the Cleveland Indians erases American history. He makes the point that, and I'll cite him here, not to put too fine a point on it, but the term Indian to indicate a Native American is not even remotely racist. Just to cite uh, one example, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian is named what it is named precisely because American Indian is the term preferred by many Native Americans. Should the museum also change the allegedly offensive name? Of course not. But now that David Marcus has raised the issue, I'm sure the Smithsonian will be quick to change it or call it um, Smithsonian National Museum of you know, knickknacks from uh, a pre-Republican era. I, I don't know. But uh, this is, um, right, uh, a, a wokeness solution in search of a problem. But again, appeals to reason will go nowhere with in American culture, not when it comes to identitarian politics, not when it comes to victimology, not when it comes to deferring against those who make a claim based on their identity. It's just not the just not where it is. How what might, however, uh, have an impact is uh, what's happening to sports in terms of the money generated and the in large part, of course, based on the viewership. Both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have pieces on this. TV networks feeling the strains of disappointing NFL ratings are forced to restructure deals with advertised to make up for the smaller audience. For example, the Thanksgiving Day game uh, year over year was down by half in 20 versus 19. Um, the advertisers are paying less for commercials during NFL games. They're getting uh, make goods and so forth. In 2020, the sports industry in North America was projected to generate $75 billion, writes the New York Times. Instead, it lost more than a third of its value as leagues were suspending, as leagues suspended play before returning with stripped down seasons. So, you know, that may be, you know, the sort of like talking about college education until they feel a hit in their pocketbooks, you're not going to get uh, them to subscribe to the idea that uh, go woke, go broke, which really, you know, has largely not been the case. There are examples, but there are many more examples where that's not the case. But it is clear that NFL ratings are down, uh, particularly among the coveted, you know, 25 to 49 demos, as are, uh, as is viewership for baseball this past summer into the fall, as well as for college football. Uh, so we'll see as more and more people flee because they don't want to be lectured to or uh, subject themselves to Nike commercials featuring Colin Kaepernick as some sort of uh, civil rights icon. Uh, maybe there'll be less of this, but I think it's much more likely that the Chiefs and the Blackhawks will be in the crosshairs next, and the Braves for that matter, than it is that uh, there'll be a lesson learned by at least this level of decline in viewership and revenue generation. They're just still too rich. It's going to be a while. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, 
fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including Parlor. A Microsoft founder and multi-billionaire Bill Gates on with Jake Tapper over the weekend on CNN. He was asked about how long he thinks that uh, this period of restrictions will last, how long with vaccine uh, dosages now rolling out around the country and the Western world, how long it will be before there'll be some return to pre-COVID America. This is what Bill Gates had to say. Certainly by the summer, we'll be way closer to normal than we are now. But even through early 2022, unless we help other countries get rid of this disease and we get high vaccination rates in our country, the risk of reintroduction will be there. And of course, the global economy will be slowed down, which hurts America economically. Uh, the uh, most interesting word he used in that uh, clip, trade-offs. The most interesting aspect of the context in which he used it to me is that the trade-offs, as he sees them, are always in the direction of safety, because why not? He is imperious because he can be. Uh, and he says things that turn out not to be true. You can have an opinion without having a medical degree. It doesn't mean that it's a fact or that it should be worthy of more respect because of your net worth. It should be worthy of respect or not based on the quality of the opinion, the evidentiary basis for it. Restaurants and bars should be shut down, he says, unfortunately. School transmission rate is negligible, not just in America, but in the Western world, in the two dozen countries that have not suspended in-person instruction. So what does he mean it's complicated? It actually, it's not complicated at all. If there's anything approaching a scientific consensus on something related to COVID other than the vaccines, it's on kids should be in school. And he says it's complicated. And this brings us back to our friend Chris Arnotti. His book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, sort of this front row, back row America dichotomy that he uh, develops in his book and in his work. Uh, he recently gave an interview to Spiked Online, our friend Brendan O'Neill over there, about um, elites in the West and how what they don't understand about the people over which they lord. And he, he's not just talking about politicians. He's talking about people that are in front row America, which may include a lot of politicians, but it's not limited to them. Chris Arnotti, writer, photojournalist, the book again, Dignity Seeking Respect in Back Row America. His uh, work is worthy of much respect. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So um, what about some of the pronouncements you get from people who uh, you know, have access to these Sunday talk shows like Bill Gates and uh, whose foundation may do uh, some laudable work, but it doesn't mean that everything that he utters should be um, codified into our protocols, the way we live our lives. And just what you heard from him on Sunday there, does that um, jive with the, your assessment that uh, front row America just sort of has no appreciation for the lives of back row America? Yeah, I mean, the obvious follow-up question is, how many servants do you have, Bill? <laughs> you have people who feed you. <laughs> it's very different when you're in a fourth floor walk up in the Bronx with three generations living you sharing one bathroom, right? And very different when you just can't go out and do things because Bill and his mansions, private jets and all that can make these pronouncements about what's best for us while he has removed himself from the policies that he wants the rest of us to have to live with. I think that's kind of indicative of a lot of how what I call front row. In my days, we used to call them eggheads, and I'm one of those eggheads. 
people who just, you know, have too much schooling and not enough common sense. That used to be a real problem. In the past, you could generally laugh them off, but now they have lots of real power. It's almost like the last 30 years has been the revenge of the nerds, and they've made a lot of money, and they control a lot of companies, and they can, and they, they have a lot of political power, and so their views on things is what the rest of us have to live with. They've removed themselves from how people live. You know, it, it, you, you watch the jaw-dropping hypocrisy from a lot of politicians. You know, it's like the governor of California. Um, I believe it was the mayor of, of Austin who went down to Mexico. The other follow-up to Bill Gates would be, uh, you, know, you know, Bill, um, the World Health Organization says uh, the West shouldn't shut down because you're disrupting supply chains for food and you're, in, you're, you're uh, endangering another 30 million people the world over who may starve to death. I thought the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was global in perspective. So what about those 30 million people? Um, and back here at home, you know, half of the uh, unemployment spike uh, in the initial round of shutdowns in the spring was people making $40,000 or less. And and what do you say to them and their jobs and their livelihoods that uh, we'll send you a check once every six months and, you know, you just learn to get by until we say it's okay for you to work again? Is that the attitude? I mean, I, I first of all, I wish we would send people a check pretty regularly. That's that's my view, and that's probably where I differ from some people on the right, but certainly not Senator Hawley. Um, you know, I think we should send people a check to make, you know, it, it, you can't tell people not to do, to, you know, <laughs> to hole up in your in your small home while we, you know, while we go to French Laundry. I agree. If you take something, if if that's a taking, right, a government taking, this is like the personal or the payroll protection program. If you if you shut down my business, that's a government taking. You have to compensate me, and I would say the same with respect to uh, disallowing people from working. So I, I'm not quibbling with that so much, but I mean that. But w- as you know, work is more than just a paycheck. It's also soul craft. There's there's psychic value to it, um, and uh, it, it, it's it's just a dismissive attitude. Say, yeah, yeah, we're going to shut you down. You can't work because you can't work uh, remotely, and so on and so forth. So we'll send you checks, and you just you know just just wait, and we'll tell you when it's okay to come out. I mean, you know, what what people are misunderstanding is how much people care need community. I mean, the 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 elites, the front row, they have their community. It's it's a global community. It's people like them, you know, and they continue to they continue to to, to find you know they find you know that's their that's their community. The people they can fly on private jets with, the people they can, you know, and and they're and they're still seeing each other. That's the thing. That's what's so frustrating is you got to allow people to have the ability to 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 live their lives and give them enough um, credit for knowing, judging the risk and understanding the risks and. You know, taking precautions you know, because people should take precautions because it's a bad, it's a bad thing going on. But right. you, you, you know, I'm I'm a big believer, uh, in almost a libertarian sense that just, just you know, let pe- people are pretty smart in aggregate. Let them, let them, let them, let them decide what to do. Limit the regulations. You know, it's like give give people money. Don't tell them what to do. Don't no strings attached. Just let them, you know, just let and and stop and stop. Politicians want to get involved in everything. It's what I call. It's like, you know, HR compliance, it's every, the compliance size, everything, you know, it's just it's it's regulate and compliance, everything. Let people leave people alone. Uh, I wanted to I, I know one of the arguments that you make is um, that the real divide in America is uh, is one of education. And uh, this is an argument that other other academics make, like Michael Lynn down at University of Texas. Uh, last week, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. Uh, issued a report showing a 22% decline in enrollment from high school seniors in college, 
with even more drastically lower levels of enrollment from poor urban and minority students. Nearly one-third of low-income minority and urban high school graduates who would have gone to college in a previous year stayed home this year, according to this report. Uh, I, I sort of have two minds of, uh, on the, that number or those numbers because of what college has become. But with respect to your point, uh, which I think is a legitimate one about the divide being one of education, um, that, that, uh, div- that, that decline in enrollment being driven by poor urban minority students, that can't be good news for those that are in the back row. Yeah, you know, if it was, if it was a decline because there were other options available, you know, and that we were we were we were um, re revaluing, putting a lot more emphasis on on people who have skills that are not education, don't require an education, crafts, um, trade skills. You know, the things that people, a lot of probably your listeners did for their lives, yeah. um, and, and or do for their lives. You know, then that would be great. But that's not what's happening. It's just people can't can't do can't live their lives, and so you know, we we really have only one the elites, the Bill Gates of this world, and others really, you know, the educated academic elites, the politicians on both parties actually really only kind of value people who go to college, and they don't value people who go to trade school. They don't value people who, who choose not to go to college and stay home to, for, you know, to be, to be part of their, to stay a strong member of their community, and that's a problem. But that's not why I think enrollment's dropping. <laughs> enrollment's dropping for bad reasons. And, you know, this this whole... You know, the, the school debate, especially at the younger ch- child, elementary, middle school debate, I mean, it, it, kids need community, man. You know, you can't run schools via Zoom. You just can't. That's not I mean. Kids go to school because they, they want to hang out with friends, and that's really an important thing. And, uh, you know, to ignore that and to, to, to ignore the value of, of the communities that come around churches and schools is just, is, I think, is kind of how, how these eggheads are missing <laughs> Miss, miss so much when they make policy. They don't understand people are, are not economic widgets that just are out there to be efficient and manufacture more. There are also people who like to, you know, <laughs> have friends. He is Chris Arnotti, writer and photographer covering addiction and poverty in America, author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The uh, Wall Street Journal opining on the uh, matter of uh, a special counsel for Hunter Biden. This uh, the argument uh, that... Uh, carries forward uh, against the backdrop of Attorney General Barr announcing that he will uh, leave office on December 23rd, his resignation as Attorney General. But he has already designated uh, John Durham special counsel. And so uh, the question is whether or not uh, there's enough faith that uh, John Durham can complete investigations that uh, both include an assessment of everything that transpired from 2016 forward in the area of Russian collusion and the activity of the intelligence and law enforcement uh, agencies at the federal level, combined with uh, his uh, apparent investigation into Hunter Biden that was opened up 
with respect to his tax affairs, Hunter Biden concedes, but probably significantly more wide ranging than that, thanks to Hunter Biden's willy nilly distribution of laptops all over the place that uh, uh, have been requisitioned by the federal government. And uh, again, though, that doesn't mean that um, this is a story. Uh, Alex Shepard writing The New Republic. Sorry, the Hunter Biden story is still not a thing, even with Hunter Biden's acknowledgement that he's under federal investigation. Even with uh, emails that uh, seem to indicate uh, Joe Biden, the big guy, was not telling the truth when he said he had no idea what Hunter Biden was doing in these various foreign theaters. Even with emails where Hunter Biden is asking for keys to be made to a D.C. office for the big guy, for his brother, for some emissary for the communist-backed Chinese energy company that paid him $5 million dollars even with emails from another business partner about $400,000 in unreported income in one tax year from Burisma, uh, even with the documentation provided by former business partner Tony Bobolinsky and the uh, perspective he gave to Tucker Carlson before the election. There's uh, really nothing to see here, not yet, says um, one of the uh, papers of uh, outlets of record for the left. Uh, there's, um, it's not a thing, not a thing to uh, get uh, perhaps a different perspective on whether it's a thing or not. We're pleased to be joined again by David Harsani. He is senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through Americans Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So um, you, you have to uh, you have to applaud the uh, intransigence of the left. Uh, they have a very high standard with respect to their own when it comes to something turning into a thing in the area of federal law enforcement. Or, yeah, I mean, I don't know if people remember, but I think it was a few days before the post wrote their Hunter Biden piece, first piece. The big story was uh, that the first lady had complained about putting up Christmas decorations on a secretly recorded tape, which no one could verify, but put on CNN, you know, for 24 hour loop itself before suppressing this story about potentially the front running front running candidate for the u.s presidency being involved in kind of shady dealing so it's a it's a weird and uh, slippery definition of what's newsworthy and what's not and uh, with respect to uh, the question of uh, attorney general barr's handling of the whole matter i mean there's so much we don't know about uh, why he was unable to fulfill his promise that the american people would know what happened uh, 2016 forward before November 3rd. That didn't happen because the Durham investigation hasn't been completed, and we don't necessarily know the full scope of why or where Durham is going. Um, but, uh, I mean, do you see that as, as a failure, or do you see that as just exigent circumstances between COVID uh, impeding the Durham investigation, as Barr said, and uh, this whole other avenue that was opened up by all things Hunter Biden-related? Well, I guess I, we need to know more before I can say uh, if he did a good job in that area or not. And generally, generally, I like him. I think he's pretty straightforward. But I do have a bit of a problem with this idea that the, the American people, that, that he actively and you know ensured that the American people wouldn't hear more about the Hunter Biden investigation. I, I know for I know that that wouldn't have happened had uh, had it been had the roles been reversed as far as the parties go. But moreover, I just don't understand why I think that's lending favors to people in power. Um, 
I think also that, that the American people deserve to know that the family, uh, that there's evidence, not just that the family, but the candidate himself might be involved in shady dealings and that there's an investigation going on. It doesn't mean that anyone's guilty, but this idea that we have to coddle the American voter and that they shouldn't hear certain things or et cetera is, is really kind of destructive because it, 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 it lends itself to corruption. Well, let me play devil's advocate on that. Um, so in one respect, um, the American people did know because it was reported by the New York Post and picked up by other outlets, too. Obviously, it was not picked up by the D.C. press corps because they were they're the comm shop for Biden and the left. But but it was out there. It was that we were discussing it prior to the election. There was even the information about subpoenas having been issued in 2018 in uh, stories that were run before the election. And number two, you know, I mean, there is this protocol at justice to not comment on ongoing investigations. So and, and I think there's good reason for that. So you don't slime people that may be a target of an investigation who never turn out to be charged with anything and negatively impact their reputation publicly. Uh, if he would have done that, wouldn't he have not been in the same position as Jim Comey and subject to the same criticism? Yeah, I think Jim Comey did the right thing, actually, in, in, in the regard in regards to Hillary. Well, not actually. I think he saved Hillary um, and it backfired on him. But we because there was a presidential candidate, he tried to or pretended to try to be forthcoming about what the FBI was up to and doing during the election. I don't as I as I preface this that comment, I'm not exactly sure what went on, but I just don't understand why the sun of the presidential candidate deserves a special treatment where, listen, you can, you can, you know, what, how far does it extend to the cousins to, you know, I mean, to the brother, to, to who, I don't know. I don't exactly understand how the protocol is used and stuff like that. So I, I, I shouldn't say definitively. I just feel like it's a weird exception that's made for people in well, power that uh, yeah. should be made for others. Well, I mean, I, you know, it, I can understand um, why people would be confused and why people, a lot of people hold the same view that you do, because the, the protocol is sometimes abided and sometimes not, if it were abided uh, categorically, including by previous uh, FBI directors and attorneys general, then uh, maybe it, the line would be a little bit brighter. This, we don't comment on things. Uh, and, and like that, because we are in the business of uh, not only protecting the integrity of the investigation from politics as best we can, but also protecting the reputation of people who are at this point are just subjects of not charged with anything. And, you know, I, I think well, look, I just quickly say one yeah, thing. Sure, go ahead. I, I, the prop the problem with all of that is that you get to say thing you get to go on TV and call something Russian disinformation. And while the FBI doesn't, I believe, actually, maybe they had debunk that. But, you know, you get to say things that simply aren't true about investigations of people. It, and it's, it's misleading in its own way. So I don't really know how the FBI or the Justice yeah. Department can handle that. But, you know, it's just it just seemed like it just seemed like that's not the kind of principled action that would have been taken by a DOJ of Biden or certainly not oh, Obama. No question. But anyway, you know, yeah, yeah, no question. When we come back with National Review's David Harsani, I want to pick up with more of the Hunter Biden investigation business and how it ties into the Chicom leak that we talked about yesterday. More with David Harsani right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. 
We're back with National Review's David Harsani talking all things Biden, Inc. And I want to talk about the recent ChaiCom leak. And I want to talk about the recent ChaiCom leak and, and how that, you know, potentially may tie into the investigation into Hunter Biden and the Biden family's forays in China. This uh, data leak from the Chinese communists of a couple of million worth of Communist Party uh, Chinese who are in good standing with the party that are dispatched all over the West, including uh, to be Eric Swalwell's girlfriend, apparently, and thinking about how compromised this administration could be as part of this larger play (laughs) that uh, China is making. You know, you start to really get into something that's much bigger than just trying to line your pockets like potentially this data leak implicates. And this could be a lot more far ranging than even we think at this point focused on the Biden family. Yeah. And it's the hypocrisy of the coverage, considering what, what we went through with Russia, et cetera, the ton more evidence that the Biden family and probably the Biden administration could be compromised by some kind of Chinese. I'm not saying it's true or not, but that could be compromised by the Chinese because they had business dealings with them that they were of Donald Trump colluding with Russia, criminally colluding with Russia in any way. So that hypocrisy probably drives people crazy as well. But to be fair, I mean, the uh, the D.C. press corps that's not focused on this Biden story is focused on another Biden story, and that is whether or not uh, Jill Biden should be called doctor or not. And so this is something they are focused on and, you know, devoting resources to. So they're not completely ignoring the Biden family. It drives me crazy, as I've tweeted this out, but the only people I call doctor are people who can uh, prescribe me morphine or Dr. J. And other than sure. that, I'm not going to call you a doctor. I feel like it's pretentious. Would, would you also refer to Dwight Gooden as Dr. K? No, because I'm a Yankees fan. I mean, there are exceptions, but not for education degrees. No offense to anyone who has one, but I just don't think it's, I think it's just credentialism basically to force people to call you a doctor when you have that sort of degree. Do you see the uh, rallying around Jill Biden and the, uh, you know, relegating Joe Epstein to the gulag, Northwestern scrubbing his name from their website immediately (laughs) and all the calls of misogyny and and, uh, deep thinkers like Graham Wood at the Atlantic telling us that doser means to, uh, uh, from the, 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 the Latin word from which doctorate derived means to teach and she's a teacher and so i mean do you find that all very compelling do you and also here instructive like paul gigo mentioned it's instructive that that they swarmed like jackals on this story because it was an opportunity to sort of flex their identitarian muscles it's crazy the things that really get their juices going you know i just you know i think that it was a funny column and i think that i was he like 80 something years old that's yeah. i think so he you know he used the word kiddo which maybe they should have scrubbed that word, but obviously he was, well, I don't know. He was being funny. It was a good column. as well-written. It was provocative, and that's what you're supposed to do when you write a column, and I agree with them. I mean, I, I know a lot of people with advanced degrees, and none of them has ever asked me to call them a doctor unless they're an actual doctor, and even them I don't call a doctor, so I just find the whole thing very funny, and the idea that someone is diminishing her accomplishments. No offense, but I find it weird. And it's, I think it grates, this is going to be a bit much on this, but I think it grates against sort of egalitarian ideals of America that some people with credentials should be, you know, lifted above the rest of us, especially when, that sort of, when they have that sort of degree. 
Absolutely. Uh, you're right. Uh, I would I would go one further. We're not denigrating Joe Biden's creden- Jill Biden's credential. We're denigrating every doctorate in education's credential. Uh, <laughs> so how's that for, uh, you know, egalitarianism? Uh, a, a, a friend of ours here at the show, Gene Kroom, who's the president of Judson University in suburban Chicago, he, he always talks about he's a doctor in, you know, some academic subject. And he always talks about how his dad introduces him. Yeah, this is my son, the doctor, but he's not the kind of doctor that can help anybody. And, um, and that's exactly how it should be viewed with Joe Biden or me with the Juris Doctorate, you know, Dr. Pro- it's ridiculous. It's obscene. And it's just that sort of uh, projecting elitism, like I'm a member of the Vanguard class. It, I, I Absolutely. people. Yeah, all the, all of a sudden they're like, you know, in, in the 1500s, you know, philosophers were called doctors. That's how it began. <laughs> OK, now you want you now, now you want to go back to the 1500s. Yeah, it's just yeah. so funny. Um the norms of American life say that, yeah, exactly. The norms of American life say that I don't have to call anyone a doctor if I don't want to, who does, you know, isn't a doctor. Jill Biden, I just, I'm sorry. I mean, when I, when you look into that degree, incidentally, you know, it's kind of like, it's not, you know, I'm sure a lot of 55 year old women would like to go back to school and, uh, you know, you know, just keep going to school and add letters to their name, but they don't have the money or the time. And uh, she did. And that's great, but it's not, Super great. I'll leave it there before you get yourself in more trouble and you know banished yeah. by uh, the enlightened class to some uh, corner of the the uh, the uh, academic. There are only world. like two places I can work already, so you know. Yeah, there you go. Right. In American uh, journalism, there. right? Yeah. Uh, David Harsani, senior writer at National Review, author of the book First Freedom: A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hassani. Thank you. Thank you, sir. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. So more evidence, science, that uh, identitarianism is, in fact, a mental disorder. Uh, Well, and it's incentivized, too, the feature being victimhood, right? Victimhood as a claim to power. We talked about this a bit uh, when there was some study released uh, back in the fall. In In Psychology Today, Uh, One study led by a researcher at the University of British Columbia found people who signal virtue and victimhood are more likely to have dark triad personality traits. The dark triad, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Narcissistic, Machiavellian, psychopath. Uh, There's your identitarian hack. Perfect. Uh, The um, uh, author suggests that... um, Being viewed as a victim can lead to a loss of esteem and respect, but in modern Western societies, being a victim doesn't always lead to undesirable outcomes. Sometimes being a victim can increase one's social status and justify one's claim to material resources. You don't say, thank you for confirming under the auspices of science what we see playing out in real time every day in every way. The uh, researchers argue contemporary Western democracies have become particularly hospitable environments for victim signalers to execute a strategy of non 
I love this phrase, non-reciprocal resource extraction. Right. That means give me your stuff because I'm a victim. Mm hmm. Well, uh, there's more. There is a uh, uh, another study out. Uh, this was uh, reported. I saw it in, at least in reason. Self victim self victimhood is a personality type. Uh, so it's not just personality characteristics. This is now an actual type. It's it's uh, metastasized into a type. Uh, a new paper in the scientific journal Personality and Individual Differences. I hope you don't let your subscription run out posits a, quote, tendency for interpersonal victimhood personality type. TIV. You got the TIV. An archetype defined by truly toxic traits. A pathological need for recognition. A difficulty empathizing with others. Feelings of moral superior superiority. And importantly, a thirst for vengeance. This uh, uh, study done by scholars associated with Tel Aviv University, Hebrew University of, General, uh, of Jerusalem, and University of Pennsylvania. The findings suggest that victimhood is a stable and meaningful personality tendency. The uh, researchers soliciting hundreds of participants for a series of psychological experiments that tested their assumptions. Um, and so, you know, th- this is not the end of the discussion because there are always replication issues with social research, social psychology research in particular. But um, it is interesting to note, it sort of builds on, you know, the observational study that I referenced from Psychology Today back in August. The study also distinguishes TIV, Tendency for Interpersonal Victimhood, from narcissism. Narcissistic individuals experience moral superiority and vengeful desires, but those feelings tend to spring from the belief that their authority capability or grandiosity is being undermined. Tiv, on the other hand, is associated with low self-esteem. While the narcissists do not want to be victimized, high Tiv individuals lash out when their victimhood is questioned. So I I don't know. They're sort of two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Sort of like a passive-aggressive narcissism. Oh, the layers to this. Um, Interestingly, too, uh, writing in Scientific American, psychologist Barry Kaufman, Scott Barry Kaufman notes, the researchers do not equate experiencing trauma and victimization with possessing the victimhood mindset. mindset. They point out a victimhood mindset can develop without experiencing severe trauma or victimization. Right. And we've seen this in real time, too. Uh, And and, and maybe they're bootstrapping uh, this conclusion based on what anybody can observe and you don't need a a degree in psychology to observe it, which is to say you just redefine what is a traumatic event. There's no real trauma. So the trauma is you culturally appropriated a Halloween costume and and that made me feel unsafe, right? This is the language of your words are violence. Your actions are violence, even though they're, other rega- they're, they're, they're self-regarding actions. There's still violence on me because I disagree with them. And the disagreement or, is traumatic. It causes me harm. That's, that's the point here. It's the, and then you have all of these incentives because of what was referenced before, that there is social status uh, to be had. There is non-reciprocal resource extraction to be gotten. So that's what's happening. Um, I just love the fact that uh, this is being put into psychological terms by an industry that tends to be dominated by the left. Fascinating. 
maybe they're extolling this as wonderful. This should be a personality type. This is something that uh, we should recognize and uh, codify as legitimate. Well, uh, a related story somewhat, although when I, I first read this, before reading this new study that was uh, described in Reason Magazine, I'm like, oh, well, this is obviously COVID-related. And this Gallup survey of Americans' attitudes about their own mental health, finding that uh, a, finding America's latest assessment of their mental health is worse than it has been at any time in the last two decades, while a majority of Americans still believe their mental health to be good or excellent, the number that... Uh, say it is only fair or poor, has uh, increased substantially. This from a survey taken in uh, mid-November. So you think, well, that's all COVID-related and the lack of, um, well, the ability to work and that uh, that is stressful and can lead to low self-esteem if you're being displaced from your job or your business, the lack of opportunities to socialize and be with friends and family and so forth. Maybe, maybe it's just uh, the overexposure uh, during these and the, the layering of the COVID plus the overexposure during these times to the identitarian mobs that have been running roughshod in America's streets all summer that uh, drove the election of Joe Biden. Maybe that's perhaps even a more proximate cause of the decline of America's collective mental health than anything related to COVID. Identitarianism as a mental disorder. The dark triad characteristics giving rise to an actual personality type. Fascinating stuff. This is Dan Proft. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And as we close out this edition, uh, well, just an illustration of what I was talking about uh, before the break with the uh, studies uh, uh, around identitarianism, uh, victimization, victimhood as a Expression of a personality type, the dark triad characteristics, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, narcissism, all coming together to present you with the identitarian American. Well, this has been afoot for a time. It's just uh, there's just a heightened incidence of it, unfortunately. And uh, one of the places that gets uh, news in recent years, every year because of their nativity scenes, is this Claremont McKenna, uh, Claremont McKenna, Claremont Methodist Church. Claremont United Methodist Church in California. Every year they do something provocative, which is to say leftist, and they get attention for it. Yeah, they're trying to to uh, uh, drive their ideology. Right. We were talking earlier in the the show with John Gabriel about uh, politics replacing religion. Right. Even in some uh, erstwhile places of religion, like Claremont United Methodist Church, this is a a uh, uh, church that has previously, uh, it last year, at, in fact, depicted Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as refugees in cages. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, prior nativity themes 
because, uh, you know, the birth of Christ is not enough of a nativity theme, called attention to the Iraq War, homelessness, the 2013 killing of Trayvon Martin. Well, this year it's a tribute to Black Lives Matter. They've got the nativity scene with this mural behind with Black Lives Matter, some, you know, with figures holding up Black Lives Matter signs, I can't breathe, Jesus wept, uh, a woman figure, am I next, right? Next from what? From who? Mm-hmm. And so on and so forth. And it's, you know, basically the Benetton ad with the Say Their Names uh, banner across the top of it with the names of individuals who've been uh, killed in police-involved killings. Uh-huh. The uh, fascinating thing is the uh, comment. This is how, uh, going back to the idea that identitarianism and mental disorder, you lose the ability to think critically, you tie yourself in knots. The uh, display, this year's display, designed by Gennaro Cordova, he's the church's groundkeeper, who said he's aware of the Black Lives Matter statement as controversial for some, but he doesn't want the display to stir anger, but prompt discussions about how people can better understand the issue. Sure. Tell me more how I can understand the issue of a Marxist organization that wants to destroy the nuclear family, Gennaro. Uh, this is, listen to what he says, though. Some people comment to me, why just black people matter? And I say, of course everyone matters, but at this time we just want to say that black Americans matter. We need to be united and not see only our differences first. So the way that you unite and not see our differences first is just focus on black Americans matter. Black lives matter. Okay. Work the logic. This is why I say don't stay safe. Stay sensible. Stay informed. Stay thoughtful. This is the Dan Proft Show.